0: Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, my guest is the rock and roll photographer Steve Rapport, a man who documented the London music scene of the 1980s armed with a camera and a passion for music with heart and soul. Let's dive into his portfolio from the Jam and Style Council, from Brixton Fair Deal to the ICA, through a key role in Red Wedge with Paul and Billy Bragg, to photography on the Lodgers and Long Hot Summer videos, plus Wembley, Live Aid and so much more. So let's get into it. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Where do we
0: find you exactly? So I know that you left the UK a while back to to head to San Fran. Are you still that
1: way? Just Google me. I'm all all over it (laughs) (laughs) because I've got so many different things going on. Um, I'm in Pacifica, California, moved here in 92 for your benefit.
0: uh, Oh, wow. Look at that. Oh, there you go.
1: There you go. Yeah. Uh, Pacifica, California is about uh, 15 miles south of San Francisco on the coast. Is that Route 1 you've shown me there? So
0: literally I can see the sea and the beach and everything. But is that? Is...
1: Yeah, it's actually Highway 1, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, been here since 2010 in, in Pacifica. I built a house here, 2010-2011. That's the house I'm in now. And I have a gallery down at Rockaway Beach. It's honestly a Rockaway Beach. It's on Rockaway <laughs> Beach Avenue a Rockaway Beach. We can <laughs> ride to Rockaway Beach, rock, rock, Rockaway beach, which, of course, is it's a different Rockaway Beach. You know, there are are on the east coast. There's a Rockaway Beach in, uh, in New Pretty. York. But 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 having a rock and roll gallery in, in Rockaway Beach is like the coolest thing. It's about fifty yards from the ocean as well.
0: Wow, what a life, man. <laughs> what a life, yeah. So this is the Paul Weller fan podcast. This is desperately seeking Paul. When did you first become aware of Paul Weller? Because I'm guessing it was really early on.
1: Well, I was a student until eighty one. So my professional career started in the middle of eighty one, but before that. I spent the summer of 77 in the States on on an exchange program, working in suburban Chicago and then traveling for a month. And I was really into American music. You know, Springsteen was my always my idol. Dylan and, you know, just loved American movies and American music and everything. And then while I was away, my sister kept every NME... You know, I used to read NME to cover to cover every week, which was funny because my English teacher at school called me Melody Maker Steve, <laughs> which used to really piss me off because no offense to Alan Lewis or anyone at Melody Maker, but I wouldn't have been called dead reading Melody Maker because it was NME for me. Penny Smith photos and Anton Corbin photos and, and all those great writers, you know, Tony Parsons, Judy Bircher was mm. there because she was just antagonistic, but they had just the best. I, I even remember they used to do these charts every week uh, other than the real charts. I don't know if you remember, but they used to have like weird made up charts Charts right every week, like that, that uh, readers would send in, and I never forgot the custard bastard chart. First <laughs> not suppose you remember what, that, but it was, was things that? like uh, uh, every bastard but the custard. Right. Uh, Custard and the Bunny Bastards. <laughs> <That's brilliant. laughs> It'd be like a top 10, and every band had Bastard and Custard in it. It was the Custard Bastard chart.
0: Love it. <laughs> brilliant.
1: <I need laughs> so the two them. funniest things probably from that era would be like John Cooper Clark and uh, and Custard Bastard,
0: because
1: <laughs> there wasn't much funny much funny stuff going on back then, a bit like now, you know, it was, it was yeah. a pretty dour time. It was just before alternative comedy, you know, Alexei Sale and all that hit so i came back so it's september 77 i read all these NMEs and i read all about elvis costello and madness and i could be getting this confused 78 because i'm old and i I spent the whole summer 78 in the states as well but i'm pretty sure it's 77 because the whole punk thing happened while i was away and then i had to catch up with it when i got back so i just devoured everything and the clash and the jam the ramones very quickly became my bands. elvis costello and then I can't remember when the two-tone thing started, but I was at Warwick, so that was a very local thing. So that's probably 78. And I was really into photography and music. I was never a punk in terms of, you know, I didn't have safety pins or spiky hair or anything. Pretty much didn't have any hair then anyway, <laughs> even as a kid. Not true. I had long hair, actually, when I was 16, 17, when I went to Warwick. I had really long hair. It's really disgusting. There's a picture of me summer and it's really, really...
0: <laughs> we need bad. to find that. We need yeah. to find imagine
1: that. Imagine if, well, uh, imagine if there are pictures of Paul with, like, Hair down to his boots. You know, <laughs> but actually, you know what? It probably looked pretty good on I mean.
0: him. <laughs> yeah, to, to be fair, yeah, he'd probably <laughs> pretty, still
1: look good long now, yeah, right? You're right, yeah. And, anyway, so I, I caught up with all these bands. So um went to see all of them except the Sex Pistols because whenever the Sex Pistols were playing, like they're supposed to play Mr. George in Coventry, they got cancelled. Like all their gigs kept getting cancelled. So I had tickets for that. And then I went back home to London. And then for the Christmas, I think, 77 and got tickets, and then that gig was cancelled. And then when I was in London, they rearranged the Coventry gig, and then when I went back to university, they rearranged the London gig, and I just oh. never got to see them. <laughs> uh, but The Clash hit you know, hit me right here, and then the specials did as well, and um, that kind of got me into music. So the jam, around the same time, uh, went to see the jam whenever I could. I do remember seeing the at Leicester de Montfort Hall. don't remember what tour that would be on, but it must have been either late 77 or early 78. So that's my first introduction to Weller. And to me, Strummer and Weller, Crash and the Jam were always the two. New Year's Eve, 77, I was at the Rainbow for the, the Ramones gig, the Gabba Gabba Hey, It's a live gig. That's the one that's the double album. It's a live double album. Someone posted me a 20-minute video from that show. It's amazing. They don't stop. One, two, three, four. Bam, 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 that's bam, bam. Right. It was like double speed. <laughs> and then straight into the, one, two, three, four, next song. And we all had little Gabba Gabba hays that they put on the seats. And you had to wave your Gabba Gabba Hey. The reason I brought that up was just that Went upstairs and there was this like seating area in a circle, and there was Chrissy Hines sitting with, with John Lydon with Johnny Rotten smoking a joint. <laughs> and I was under this naive assumption that dope was hippie drugs, you know, and punks didn't do dope, maybe speed, amphetamines, but not dope because that was hippie shit. Turns out, like, Joe was smoking it all the time, and I suppose they all were. Yeah,
0: you, know, you said you were getting into photography. Had you decided at that point that this was one of your careers? Because I know there are many kind of strings to your bow, but at which point did you, did you think, actually, I can make some money from this, I can start doing this as a, for a living?
1: Fast forward to 81, I'm in my third year of a PhD, believe it or not, a Warwick, in law and public order, how the state controls dis- <laughs> dissent in a democracy. Right. And I did a case study about um, a riot in 1829 at Cold Bath Fields when a policeman was killed by the rioters. And compare and contrast with 1979, the the riot in Southall where Blair Peach was murdered by the special patrol group of the Metropolitan Police. So I did these two massive case studies, but I didn't have my thesis like all tied together. So I was spending most of my time in an office at Warwick listening to music and with people, my, my punky friends coming in and talking about music, I had a, a radio show at Warwick. No one used to listen to but it was called Roots Rock Reggae, except yeah. it started with the Ramones, and it was pretty much all punk. Um, and, you know, so I was meeting these bands, taking pictures of the bands around the Coventry area. What happened got it was started was Robert Plant came to Warwick University with the Honey Drippers. It was a benefit show for the International Year of the Disabled, and he played in the Student Union, which wasn't that common. You know, we had an art centre with a stage, but this was in the Student Union. And, you know, it was packed, the lighting was shit, and I got some pretty crappy pictures. But I literally, I, I was a, a human Bruce Springsteen song. I got the bus, the national bus from Coventry to Victoria the next day, got out of Victoria Station, went to a phone booth, and my recollection is one of those open phone booths, not the red one, because they hadn't deigned to invent cell phones yet. So, And I get the phone book. Now, for younger listeners, we used to have this huge thing called a phone book. I used to look up phone numbers in it. So I look in the business direction thinking, who should I call? Who'll be interested in Robert Plant? Enemy, there's no way Enemy's really going to be interested in this, which was like the biggest decision I ever made in my life, probably. <laughs> Certainly one of them, how yeah. the road forks. Yeah. Melody maker, yeah, maybe not. Sounds, it's got to be sounds, really. Sounds, punk, heavy metal, rock, which wasn't my thing at all. Metal was never my thing at all. So I uh, cold call Sounds, and they put me uh, through to Eric Fielder, the picture editor, and he says, uh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Why don't you come over in Common Garden? So I go over to Spotlight Publications in Common Garden, have a little shitty portfolio. And uh, he looks at the Robert Plunk and says, yeah, we can use this. Why don't, can you write 50 words for the news page? So, so yeah, yeah. So I sit down and write, probably hand wrote 50 words. And they actually used it. And I showed him my little portfolio. Wow. He says, well, if anything <laughs> happens, if anything's happening in Coventry, Coventry area, maybe we'll give you a call. That's incredible. Yeah, that started my career. And then uh, <laughs> a couple of months later, in I think June, the specials were playing at Butts Stadium. It was actually called Butts Stadium, B-U-T-T-S Stadium. Yeah. Plus Children and, and one or two other bands. I always thought it was Selector. I don't think Selector were on that bill, but the specials were. And, and I think I was friends with them by then. Um, so I took pictures of the specials. I got some pictures backstage or outside. It was Jerry, and Terry, and then Terry and Jeanette, who went on to become his wife. Um, Terry's got the big zoot on. I think they sent Karen Swain up from London, the journalist, so we covered this together. And then she went back, and then I, I must have gone down with the box of pictures, and I didn't know how many... I'd never done this before. I didn't know how many pictures you present, you know, as a photographer. So I had like 70 prints that I made in the in the, union, in the student union darkroom. So they looked through them. They used a picture of Jerry Dammers, and they used it really big. They used it like over several columns. And um, that was my first commissioned, like, real picture. And I have scanned it. I've got it here. So as we're talking, I'll, I'll find that one. And the cool thing is, actually, this one was pretty badly damaged over the years. But there's Terry in the background and Jeanette. Yeah, That's Jeanette yeah. on Jerry's right. Jerry's right on Jerry's left. And actually, the bloke next to um, Terry Hall is actually the guy that was in the colour field with him years later.
0: I mean, you make it sound very simple, um, but it sounds like there's not a huge amount of hustle having to come from you to kind of make that happen. That's great. What a brilliant photo. So
1: that's for those of you at home, that's Jerry Dammers, um, a selector gig, which was probably two or three years earlier. It's so maybe 78, something like that. Just happened to have a picture of Jerry at the uh, Selector Gig. And and just quickly on the Jerry thing. So I used to see the specials and I'd see them around Coventry and around t- campus every now and then. And Jerry was always really mean to me. He like always give me the cold shoulder. And then after a year or two of this, he came up to me. This is my my memory's not that good, you know, it's a long time ago, but Jerry came up to me and said, Sorry, I thought you were someone else. Oh. <laughs> And that's someone else I really hate. <laughs> yeah, some twat some who looked like me. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it wasn't, wasn't me. And, and we kind of became, we kind of became friends um, really up to when I left England um, in 92. I haven't seen Jerry since I left England, but we used to hang out every now and then. He lived in Brixton, I was in Clapham, and we used to meet for tea at tea time on Clapham Common. And funnily enough, I'd spent in touch with Chris Salovich, uh, the writer who wrote the, the Joe Strummer book I'm reading. And he used to meet Jerry at the same, at the same tea shop. <laughs> <laughs> in, in much more recent in much more recent years. Oh how funny that's so, just his spot. It's <laughs> just stayed with us. So his, Jerry his is also Jerry is also uh, a weaving thread through my photography career, as is Billy, and and Paul, because you know, I, I took pictures of the jam a few times, including the legendary Sobel Sports Center gig in eighty one was it 81, 82, at Christmas when there were pitch battles in the street in the snow with all the skinheads from the bigger the the rainbow at Finsbury Park. Um, just around the corner. It was Bananarama Department S in the jam at the Microsoft Sports Center. And there was this punk thing at, or skinhead thing. It wasn't even it wasn't it wasn't punks and mods. It was like skinheads and mods fighting in the snow and ice outside. It was like a <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> like a Game of Thrones battle. And then I took pictures of them at the Brixton Fair Deal. And actually, not a lot of people know this. I was friends with Pat. who was the head of press at CBS. Became Sony, Sony Music. And I think my friend Kathy was there at the same time. In the press office and she's still a friend and, and pat actually got me to take pictures at, the, at her wedding to bruce to bruce foxton
0: wow cool
1: so i was actually i don't know if i was the wedding photographer because often you have like the formal one, someone yeah. else who just walks around and taking pictures I, I i didn't do weddings i wouldn't do weddings but you know being asked by pat to do pictures at bruce foxton's wedding i said yes i don't have the pictures i don't remember the pictures at all and i, I looked it up recently and she she passed away from uh, breast cancer yeah, a few years ago but they were together the whole time really sad about that because she was a lovely woman and clearly Bruce was a really nice bloke as well between the jam and the star council was the ICA gig so somehow I got to go to the ICA gig as well with everything so is that but him the girl on it, is that him on his own with yeah everything but the girl is with right? everything but the girl and you know I love Tracy Thorne and Benoit um, worked with them quite a bit back in the day and it turns out that he just like cold called them and they were still at university I can't remember what university they were at something like Leicester University. They were at university together, and they were still at university, and I think they were recording. And he heard their stuff, and he just called them and asked them to come and do a gig with him. I love those pictures. He looks so sharp in those pictures. And it really is transitional because, you know, you know what he looks like in the jam. You don't know what's next. And then he just looks like, I don't know, he's free... He doesn't know what to do with himself. And i got a couple of full-length pictures of him, so you can see... You've look. managed
0: to take a shot there as well, where it's like, I mean, literally looks like the, the weight is lifted off his shoulders. It's so strange. Do, do, do
1: you know what I mean? Which seems like yeah, I, I think I found one or two clips from that show. I did on YouTube. Right. And, he, he did, and I just remember how vibrant it was and, and how free he seemed. So, you know, he clearly didn't know what to do next, but he thought, you know, let's have a bit of fun in the meantime. Yeah. So... That's like the link between between the two eras. So I was really lucky to get to do that, probably for sounds, but there are two frames that show the three of them. Because, you know, you're always dependent on where you are in the pit. You know, you often couldn't move in a pit. Sometimes there was no pit, so you're kind of stuck. So, you know, you might just have the bass player in front of you. You tried to get your best spot, but often it was really hard to get the whole band, and you just took whatever you could get. So I got two frames of Tracy, Ben, and Paul which is really nice to have. It must have been not long before that that I did the Central London Poly gig as well. Probably, was that the waning days of the jam? I mm-hmm. feel like it must have been because it was probably 81 or 82. And I think I was at Smash Hits in the afternoon in Carnaby Street, and I happened to have my camera bag with me, and they said, oh, we just found out that the jam are playing tonight at Central London Poly. Wait, what? like in the refectory or something. Um, and it was a benefit gig for... Um, Yops, not jobs. Youth opportunities program, and it's like an, an anti-Thatcher gig. With lots of there are lots of banners on the wall, and they, they actually used uh, John used one of those pictures on the Snap album, yeah, and the gatefold. It's on the inside sleeve, and that was one of one of the great honors of my life. I think having a picture on a Jam album,
0: yeah, because that was um, the first greatest hits, wasn't it? Was yeah, really and I think the band is
1: very heavily involved in that as yeah, well. Yeah. I remember seeing some interview with Paul where he was talking about the running order. Why is it kind of random? He's like, well, <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, great! What a lovely story.
1: And then there's the style council. I should mention that you know my my photography career finished in like '94. A couple of years after I moved here. Once I moved here, it kind of went down into the toilet and then disappeared completely. My photo library was in England for 25 years, so I was only reunited with it literally three years ago. I, I did scan a bunch of stuff, but in the last few months, the last 10 months since lockdown, I've been reunited with a lot more of my archive. And I've realized how much I love those bands because it was kind of lost on me in the years, over the years, how much I love The Clash, how much I love The Jam, how much I love The Style Council. And The Style Council in particular now, I mean, that's a revolutionary band, right? Because they've got revolutionary lyrics, loads of politics in a dance band, cross-genre, jazz, funk, fusion, pop. And I always love piano, saxophone, big Springsteen fans. So you got, you know, those kind of instruments, keyboards saxophone, sometimes a trumpet, you got Mick, you know, tinkling the ivories, that fresh sound and the fact that he would weave in all these political lines where you listen to it now, you like, yeah. I mean yeah. some of
0: it's like so damning, isn't it, of the times and the government, like you say, but but weaves into a catchy pop song. It's like that's a real yeah, song. Yeah,
1: when you you know, and I think maybe Maybe we didn't take the lyrics. We didn't notice how powerful the lyrics were mm. at the time. But I know that come to Milton Keynes, he got a lot of shit for it at the time, right? But when you listen to it, it's really hard to see that line about, we used to chase dreams, now we chase the dragon. That's yeah. like, oh, Thatcher's yes. Britain. And I hope kids know what that means. But, but, you know, that's really a dagger to the heart of Thatcher's Britain. So my time with the Style Council, the funny thing is I can't remember like a single conversation I had with Paul like, <laughs> where we sat down and, and, and chatted, like Billy. Really, I used to hang out with quite a bit, you know, I had quite a a few experiences with, but I took pictures of Paul a whole shit ton of times, but I just think he was very shy. He was was very expressive on stage and in his lyrics, but I felt like he really kind of kept to himself, even on the Red Wedge tour in 86. He believed what he believed. He didn't want to be part of the party kind of stuff, which I didn't. I I never joined a political party. Billy was much more, you know, Mm -hmm. as you know, kind of hard hitting and, and he was the driving force, but it really was Billy and Paul that were the founders of Red Wedge. And and John Weller didn't like that. I think John Weller was pretty conservative and he tried to talk Paul out of it, I think. And I feel like me and John maybe bumped heads a few times because he felt like I was one of those lefties that, you know, was kind of corrupting his son, but that's 86. So there's still like, what, 83, 84, 85. So I did. Yeah. I got to work on Long Hot Summer and, um, The Lodger, where the video is nothing like the song.
0: No, the bit I I revisited earlier on, and it's I hadn't seen that for so long. It's this is the third single off our favorite shop, you're right, 1985. And there's like bits with Weller dancing away. There's all of them, I think, dancing. So there's like Dee, Mick, all having a boogie. It's so random.
1: Yeah, you know, they're at the racetrack. And then there's the picture, then they're in the studio, and there's that picture. It's actually um, Ian used it on the cover of his book, but we didn't know each other then. He got it from an agency, I think. Um, which is a shame. Uh, what's that, The, the, the uh, Mr. Cool's Dream? Kind of the definitive Star Council book. I didn't even know. I had no idea about that until until recently. Oh, really? Um, but, but very quickly, Long, Long Hot Summer, free, that, that was one of my best days as a photographer. Let me just say that. It was just a gorgeous day on the river in Cambridge, and everyone was really chill. Tim Pope directed it. Tim was a crazy genius. And Long Hot Summer, and Paul was just in, in that playful mood, you know? Everyone was really chill. Steve was there. Steve White really liked Steve a great bunch of blokes and just hanging out on the river and getting to take pictures of Paul Weller. It's just, you know, it's a photographer's dream and a kid's dream and a student's dream and a a jam and Star Council fan's dream. I can't remember anything more specific than that. Like, oh yeah, that time Paul told me, you know, this great revelation, but just, it was just always, you know, a joy because of the music and a pleasure because of my fandom. Maybe I was just always a bit in awe of Paul as well.
0: And what is it? Because I think there's an element where I'll be honest. right, As somebody who's in the mosh pit, there's an element where we there's a love hate with you guys. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, because we're in the way, right?
0: You're in the way from the first note. So you know, so Weller comes on. Um, he's playing the first few songs. I'm I'm there trying to look around. Oh, this bloke's in the way with his massive lens or whatever. But then the love bit is we see the end result, and you can kind of see these pictures of the gig that you were at, and and you have them. For, you can get them forever and all that. But when you're in that pit and you're in there for you know a short period of time before you have to clear off out the way for us what are you focused on because you're just looking down a lens looking into a lens looking into the camera are you just clicking away anything and everything or is there something where you've got a bit of a mission in mind and you kind of go i know i need to try and do this this is this is it because there's an expertise to it as well isn't there
1: oh not not the latter (laughs) not not the latter um you, you just have to yeah really wing it that whole four numbers three numbers two numbers one number that was later that was really what got me out of photography because it, it became harder and harder and harder to do your job and I have some stories about that. And like REM in 95 ended up being the last gig I covered. It was one number and then out. And then they, they didn't even give us a ticket for the show. And it was down the down the peninsula it's like on a, on a, during the rush hour. It's a 50-mile 50, 50 drive, but it's like a two-hour drive because it's at the Mountain View at the Shoreline Amphitheater, like 20,000 people. And it's, an, it's always a nightmare. So you had to really want to go and see a band there to go and then – they didn't even... And there's like a big grass banks that you sit on. So you either have seats in the bowl or you go on the grass. They didn't even give us tickets to sit on the grass. It was just like one number. <laughs> and then they led us out of the, of the arena of the, of the venue. And, and then driving way to back by. to San Francisco. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's like, oh, fuck it. I, I'm gonna, I, I, was into, I was into web design by then. I was already doing websites. 95. Surprised so, um, at that. Were you in the pit of the whole gig? So my recollection is... That before that, like 81, 82, 83, 84, where we've got all these great photos from all these punk gigs and New Wave and New Romantic and all that, we just shot the gig. You went to a gig and you shot the gig. And whether there was a pit or not, you would shoot the gig. And sometimes you had shit access. If you didn't have a pit, it was really hard. And a lot of the punk shows, the lighting was terrible. So I hated using flash, but sometimes you just didn't have any option because you just you wouldn't get anything otherwise i prided myself on like pushing my film two stops to 1600 asa and i could shoot anything if the lighting was halfway decent i wouldn't need flash and yeah you're focused mostly on the singer in most bands you're focused on the singer the whole time just trying to stay focused trying to keep the camera focused there's no autofocus or anything so you know a lot of our great shots are not quite there focus wise and I didn't realize that until later. A lot of the pictures that are not perfect are, all, are amazing. Um, and I was always one for like, has to be like pin sharp. Mm-hmm. Having good equipment, uh, I had a, a a digital light meter, Pentax digital light meter. It's like a little gun. You look through it. It's got one degree. So I can read, you know, your face. I would read one side of the face, the, the shadow side, and then the light side, and then the forehead, which is the middle between the two. And I kind of average out the Exposure. You had a light meter usually in your camera, but you know, with these really bright, brights and really dark, darks, because the light meter was all over the place. Right. The, the spot meter would give you a sense that I'm not far off, you know, and you had quite a lot of latitude of black and white, not so much for color. And then you had to dodge whatever mayhem was going on. <laughs> like I got a picture of a Jell O Biafra crowd surfing somewhere in like 81 or 82. And I can't think where I was to take that am i in the crowd am i in a pit am i am i secure you know and then you have got security like dragging people off the stage yeah. uh, people passing out they dragging them over the barrier if you're lucky there's a crash barrier that was the whole length of the stage and and then there's photographers on the safe side of the crash barrier and then so, if you're really lucky then you could move locations you know you can move all the way along if it was a big if there are a lot of photographers you might have to stake out a place and then you're kind of stuck there i had a really fantastic zoom lens um, I had a fast 85 mil, um, and then I had an 80 to 200 zoom. That was a really fast, really expensive Nikon lens, an mm-hmm. IFED into, internal focus, extra dispersion glass. So that was a great lens for, for gigs. That was in my back pocket if, if you know I didn't have good access. And I was not a wide-angle photographer, so a lot of photographers would do this. And I'm like, I'm looking for like a, the portrait, but on stage, and I'm looking for the lighting. I love. I got this picture of Susie where she's in the bottom corner and she's got her arms out like this and the light's in the top opposite corner and it's just like the light's coming down here and everything else is black. So I love pictures like that. It's
0: hard obviously to, to talk in an audio way. So I think people have to go onto the website. Am I right in thinking you were at Live Aid? Yeah. So this is Macca, Elton John, Freddie Mercury and the shot you've got of Freddie Mercury. Did, you, did you, you snap any of the style council that night as well? I yeah, I, I think
1: I might have one in the book, actually. I think there might be okay. one in, in a Soul Deep book. Most of the afternoon stuff was really shit in terms of photography because it's daylight, which always sucked. It always sucked. Also an arena. Uh, like I, I did uh, Milton Keynes a couple of times, uh, uh, a queen with Joan Jett and, and mm-hmm. Teardrop Explodes, Gina Cope. You can see the scaffolding in the photos. There's Springsteen at St James's Park in the afternoon, and it's just it's a scaffolding stage in a football stadium, you no? Know? So Wembley, you know, hundred thousand people, and it was okay for pictures at night when it got towards the finales. But during the day, the backdrop was very uninspiring, and the lighting was kind of shit for photography. I mean, it's just flat. There's no spotlights. There's no darkness. And I shot colour, and not black and white. And then Live Aid Foundation basically stole all our pictures and we never got them back, which was okay because it's a foundation. We, we gave them all our pictures, but apparently they just threw them all away in the end. No, man, what? It's like the song.
0: <laughs> just threw it all away. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: because I think Andrew Catlin, one of the photographers who was there, I think it was Andrew Andy Catlin, he actually went to Live Aid Foundation and, and he, he said there were trash bags literally full oh, of our photos that were just not even in their mouths. They just tossed them all away. So what we had, most of us from Live Aid is dupes and of dupes of dupes and like duplicates and duplicates so really low quality and not the best material anyway because it went to Live Aid I, I covered it for Smash Hits so somewhere there's probably an archive at Smash Hits but all the magazines have gone out of business and been yeah. bought and sold and bought and sold so who yeah. knows plus yeah, I'm over yeah. here so the live aid materials, I have, I do have Star Council pictures, and they're kind of flat and not my best pictures. And then they're damaged after thirty years or twenty-five years in the garage as well. So I've got amazing red wedge pics of Paul at all the gigs, backstage, sound checking, and I've got a picture of of Suggs with Paul Weller at Birmingham, I think, on the Red Wedge tour. And then there's one of Chaz with Billy on stage. At one of those gigs. But lots of backstage stuff of Weller from from 86 and all the Red Wedge stuff.
0: I was lucky enough to um, interview Billy Bragg Donkeys years ago. This is when Mermaid Avenue came out. And we mainly talked about his love of car boot sales. Because um, <laughs> <but, laughs> he used to do the car boot sales around the corner from where I lived. So he used to go. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, hilariously. But yeah, he was such an important part, obviously, in, in with Paul in that in that Red Wedge time. And, and just a really interesting period. I mean,
1: let me point out, though, it's something that people forget unless they were there. The music was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Every night, that tour, you know, with the Communards, Sarah J. Morris, Billy Bragg, Paul Weller, Star Council, with with Billy Chapman, sax player, and Steve Sidelnik on, on congas, Helen Turner on the piano, plus Johnny Marr playing guitar with Billy. And then the finale, there's Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet, and there's Suggs and Chaz Smash. And, and I know at least one other madness um, guy was played on at least one of the gigs and and Lloyd Cole and Dr. Robert and Tom Robinson Mm -hmm. and, you know, the the guy from Lindisfarne Alan Hull played in Newcastle. And then the Smiths actually played in Newcastle. I'm not a Smiths fan. And Morrissey always pissed me off, especially his politics. I think he was pissed off that Johnny was getting all the publicity. So I didn't even remember, but the Smiths actually played. Morrissey and Andy Rourke actually played more than one of the gigs as well. I think when Johnny Marr played, Andy was there in the background as well playing bass. And then people, I always loved it when you had all these different bands on stage at the same time, and you do Move On Up, people get ready, you know how much Paul loved Curtis Mayfield's songs. The music was amazing. Uh, Juliet Roberts from uh, Working Week played a couple of the gigs, including the London one at Smith Odeon. The politics, you know, yeah, it got to the point where we were being manipulated. The people who were running, like Red Wedge, I felt, had careers in mind rather than yeah. it got much more businessy. But when it first started, it was just really electric, really explosive. And uh, Porky, Phil Jupitus was, was there all the gigs, or and, and, uh, well, most of them. I think Joe Norris was there. and Even, even Tim Roth. It, I, there's a picture. You can just see Tim Roth standing off stage at one of the gigs. And Tim was on stage at Artists Against Apartheid at uh, Clapham Common as well. And um, people say that Red Wedge failed. I think it was an amazing experiment and an amazing experience. Again, my recollection is that I was the one who got Gary Kemp involved. I asked him if he'd he'd do it. Um, And that was kind of my role, apart from taking pictures, was uh, asking people if they'd join in. And I won't take credit, but I may have asked Lloyd Cole. I may have spoken to Dr. Robert and, um, and even Tom Robinson. I'm not sure. Tom was probably there before me, I would think. But my recollection, again, is that Billy and Paul got it together, and I heard about it really early on. So I went to all the early formative meetings. We used to meet on um, the old Kent Road and go to this pub. And I remember Tim Roth was there more than once as well. But my recollection is that we had early meetings in my house with me and my, my, my then wife Rebecca. That, that Billy and Paul actually came over to my house a couple of times in Clapham, uh, just off the west side of Clapham Common, about a hundred to two hundred yards from the stage for the Artists Against Apartheid festival um on Clapham Common where the Star Council and Billy Bragg played right so I did get pictures and I, I was halfway through saying that before I re- re- remember that the Star Council played at that gig
0: one of the big ones for fans of the Star Council watching them live is Showbiz Live which was two nights at Wembley in December 1985 and I don't know how much you can remember that but I, I've certainly seen some of your shots which are just incredible
1: we intersected a lot I, I had it I added it up in my head the other day I took pictures of Star Council or jam gigs or, or well gigs like fourteen times I think over those few years I had no idea it was that many but the Wembley ones the Wembley Arena ones I thought I only went to one and then I found some other pictures where Paul's wearing different gear because they had he had the jacket with the TSC logo on it and Mick was wearing the TSC logo.
0: Are you sure it wasn't just a costume change like Beyonce or something?
1: <laughs> Midway yeah, no, the <laughs> no, because because either Ian Munn or or one one of the Star Council legends, I think it's, it probably was Mr. Cool's dream, said it was, or, or, or it might have been uh, Dave, uh, Heavy Soul Brother.
0: Yeah, yeah, Paul Weather News. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it might have been Dave actually said that it was the second night. And I might, were there three nights? I know two, there were two nights on film, right? Were there three nights? I don't know, actually. That, that would be one so you'd. Two, have
0: to, I'd have to refer
1: to Ian on. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a feeling there might have been, but I definitely took pictures on at least two of them. Because, again, I have this whole set of pictures the thing is, with my color transparencies, I often can't place them because there's no index. The black and whites are all indexed and numbered, and they're consecutive, and you have the contact sheets and the negs. They were filed away, and I, I kind of hand database them at the time, and that's all in a in database now. But the color, and sometimes there was a gig, maybe Smash Hits would send me, and there's no black and white even, so I can't match it to anything else. I can't match it in time or place, and I just have to try, try, try to be a detective and figure out, when it was, or get help on on uh, Instagram, and lucky there are people like Ian around or Stuart or, yeah. or Dave who can say, "Oh, it was it was this gig." So yeah, there's the one with the with the suit, but then there's the one with the um, blue flannelette shirt. I think was the other one, and same with D. Dee's in completely different gear from one of them than from the other, and where she's got the the white bandana like headgear thing. Mm-hmm. And I think they didn't even have the same. I think Junior played on one of those and not on the other. Okay. I could be wrong about that. But, you know, there, there were different guests as well. So as to what I remember, I don't remember a whole a whole lot about most of the gigs that I went to, unfortunately, because, you know, focusing on the pictures, loving the music. So I was probably grooving <laughs> while I was photographing because um, I was, like I said earlier, I was dead into the jam and I was dead into the Star Council.
0: One thing it does capture is just how sharp they look. And I know that was such an important thing because there's a lot of the 80s fashion if we look back now it was was god awful let's be honest but they look incredible every single photo you've got they just look so sharp don't they
1: yeah i, I just uh, sold some pictures in the summer or, or fall or autumn last year to mr porter magazine they did a really great weller retrospective of his fashion and they bought three pictures from me i think it's three or four pictures so he's like he really is a style icon and, you know, it's not unnoticed. People keep posting pictures. A lot of the people I follow on Instagram post a lot of Weller stuff. I follow all the official and kind of semi and unofficial Weller. But then there's a lot of people who just post a lot of Weller pictures. And there's some astonishingly good pictures of him wearing amazing gear. And there was one yesterday uh, that was taken. must have been in the last year. Three different pictures where he's wearing. one of them he has got this real geezer suit on and he just looks really sharp. And, and the quote is something like, you're never too old to wear good clothes or you know, <laughs> never never feel like you can't. But yeah, the, the Red Wedge Tour is interesting because he's got like sweaters. He's got that big V-neck, that gold-coloured V-neck sweater in the Manchester Apollo pictures, which is a little different than uh, some of the other gear. But then there's the other pictures in Newcastle where he's got that really sharp blazer, the blue yeah. blazer, yeah. and the orange. I think he's got an orange top on. Then, of course, there's all the Fred Perrys. Live
0: Aid itself, an incredible lineup, but... The people that you've worked with through your career as well, um, it would be, be a miss of me not to kind of cover some of these and talk about some of these. So we're talking Bono, we've mentioned Billy Bragg, Kate Bush, Lemmy, Iggy Pop, Elvis Costello, Eurythmics, Van Morrison, Kylie, David Bowie, and I know there's a bit of a story there as well, isn't there? And also I've got to ask you about Springsteen because there's this wonderful picture of you, um, or that you've taken with the boss and the big man, with Clarence. Tell me about that.
1: Independence Day 85, July 4th, 1995, Wembley Stadium. Bruce is wearing the blue shirt and Clarence has got the white suit on. And, um, oh, so Bruce, I, I've been a Springsteen fan since 1976, since Born to Run was still current. My first experience listening to it, because, you know, he was a pretty big name, getting to be a big name, and, and I knew a lot of people who were into him. And I was really into Bob Dylan, and I had this secondhand record store at uh, my student union at Warwick. We got this copy of Born to Run, so I thought I'd give it a spin on the turntable, and I, I, I remember playing it in 75, and I think, you know, it's really derivative, it really sounds like Bob Dylan sounds like my back page, it sounds like it's trying to be Bob Dylan. And then like a year went by and the next year I, I got another copy in the record stall and, and I thought, let me give this another spin because, you know, the legend was growing and I played it and I'm like, oh my God, this is the best thing <laughs> I've ever heard in my fucking life. And I heard parents playing the, uh, playing the saxophone and then when it got to Jungle Land, I was literally on my bed, jumping up and down on the bed listening to this. So since that moment... I actually did a, um, a Blinded by the Light thing. You've seen Blinded by the yeah, Light. Yeah, it's a brilliant film. I am basically, yeah. um, basically that kid. It's, you know, 1979, he's, he's going to anti-National Front things or there's an anti-Nazi league in the background. There's a shot of a Lion's Tea House in, in the movie and I actually worked uh, washing dishes at Lion's Tea House on a Saturday for a while in, a, in Cranbrook Road in Ilford, near Ilford Station. Across the road from the record shop, where I bought my first records, first album was Every Picture Tells a Story, which it turns out, when I went out for a drink with Joe Strummer, my, my one Joe Strummer, turned out that we both bought um, Every Picture Tells a Story as our first album. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and I got uh, a Ziggy Stardust there, that was my second album. So, Blinded by the Light, he gets to go to New Jersey to see Bruce Springsteen, and I made a pilgrimage, I actually managed to arrange a trip to New York, uh, where I got to take pictures of Bruce at... Uh, Meadowlands in New Jersey. Not the same as going to Asbury Park. I never did that, saw him in a club or anything. I cried a lot watching uh, Blinded by the Light. There's even um, kind of open day at the school, and there's actually red wedge posters on the wall. Now, they didn't use our red wedge posters, but they used the red wedge Kandinsky painting to advertise a political club in the Oh, the, brilliant!
0: Um, oh, wow! There's, there's something to for, for us to spot out. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah there was a. There was so I. I kept stopping it to tell my friend. Oh God, that's just. <laughs> like, oh, I remember that. We we did. You know, you know. I'm I'm the white version of the the young Pakistani kid or Pakistani English kid in that movie, and um, I, I really so identified with his character. You know, he's getting shit from all the the scum from the skinheads, and anyway, so Springsteen, and then. uh the next year, 85, he came over to Wembley. So I did get to go, I think, for Smash Hits. But I syndicated pictures, so the pictures show up kind of everywhere. So it's often hard for me to remember who I took them for. But that picture was actually used in Amateur Photographer some years later, which actually was one of my highlights of my career, really, because <laughs> it, it was to illustrate, you know... The, the difficulties you have as a photographer sometimes with lighting conditions where you have a white man and a black man on a stage. So you've got a dark background. The white guy is wearing blue, but the black guy is wearing white, all white, a white suit. How do you expose that? How do you how do you balance out the exposure for that? So I'm really proud of that picture for a number of reasons. And then there's, they're exchanging a look. Honestly, it's a look of love. It's just there's just so much excitement. And passion for music, which is why I'm signing myself off these days with... uh, And somewhere in my soul, there's always rock and roll, which is a Joe Strummer line. And Bruce was very conscious about having people of color in his band as well, which wasn't that common in rock at that time. It really wasn't in the 70s. It was pretty unusual. He had other people of color in his band before Clarence as well, and then made a point of having Clarence on the cover of Born to Run. It meant a lot to him. And seeing them be brothers over the years was... That always meant a lot to me, yeah. Just like specials meant a lot to me and any other bands that promoted. That's why I love The Crash so much as well. Mm. And what was the David Bowie story? I heard, this was 85, Tonight Album was out. He was um, making a video for Loving the Alien. And I heard through the grapevine that he was looking for a photographer he hadn't worked with to work on the video and do the cover for the single, for Loving the Alien. I heard about it from a couple of people and then Two different people recommended me for it. Uh, Versa Manas, who was a friend of mine who um, used to work for, I think, for Polydor and then started her own company, Perverse Publicity. Um, mm-hmm. She recommended me. She's also the woman who got me the photo pass and the backstage pass for the spring scene at, at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. She mm-hmm. actually uh, got me in touch with Chris Chappell because he was a friend of hers. Chris Chappell was actually, turns out, was the boyfriend of the woman I bought my house from in Clapham, which is the one next to the Artists Against the Partite Festival, which is where the Star Council play. So, <laughs> it all comes full circle. <laughs> it all comes full circle. That's why I bought the house, because there were pictures of her sitting in Bruce Springsteen's lap. And then that's how I got that story. So two people recommended me. So they asked to see my portfolio. So I sent my portfolio in. And then um, I, I heard a while later that they wanted me to do it. This was David and, um, and Coco. And I think Coco used to be um, his girlfriend, I think, years before. Mm-hmm. And then she was his manager. And she was like the hard, you know, the hard part. And he was the soft part of the yin and yang. Meantime studio. So I get out. Very nervous. Biggest job of my life. It's David Bowie. And, and my recollection is it's the big uh, warehousey studio and it's dark. And um, I walk in and walk across this big expanse of studio space. And then I'm, I might be mythologizing this a bit, but out of the shadows emerges <laughs> David Bowie w- walking towards me. I'm like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and David walks up to me and extends his hand and he says, "Hello, I'm David. You must be Steve." Oh, wow! And that's my <laughs> that's my best that's my wow. best story, my best rock and roll moment. Actually, the Lemmy story is probably my best story, but that's because it's Lemmy. But for me personally, the, the, the Bowie story is, is, you
0: know. That sounds like um, the first time I met Paul Weller when, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and literally the only thing I could think of was saying was shaking his hand and saying, big fan, big fan. That was the only thing. That was the That was the level of all, everything I'd ever wanted to say in my head just disappeared. And I just shook his hand and went, big fan, big fan. And then he walks away.
1: <laughs> That's pretty much the standard thing when you meet your heroes, though, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. You can't think of what to say other than, I love you, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um,
0: two final questions before you go you are allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life which one is it going to be
1: right now it might be on sunset oh really although that my whole life it's really that's entertainment i mean and it ties into what that one picture that's entertainment picture where he looks like brian jones from uh, microsoft sports center but i think i would like to talk more because there's a kind of a sad part of it i haven't seen him since 86 i think we haven't spoken in like. 34 years which is part just life and I've been here for 28 years but partly mm. something that Paul didn't like that you done yeah and it's a weird it's a weird thing it's one of those ones, really it doesn't make sense but I would love the opportunity to sit down for a chat and a cup of tea or a coffee with Paul and and chat I, I love who he's become as much as I love who he was and now when I look back at the arc of his career I think after moving here I kind of lost touch with all of that music and I've listening to a lot of indie music the last few years and it's only recently that I'm back in touch with these bands that I loved and now I see why I love them so much and Star Council is right up there above the jam above almost anyone else um, my whole life really and and now I'm being able to reflect on all the intervening years that I missed when well I was solo but I was there for on Sunset and I did it the day it came out went on a hiking trip to Lake Tahoe and listened to it oh lovely over and over and over and over again car on the way there, on the way back, while I was hiking. And what a masterpiece, what an achievement that is. It's like uh, well as Sergeant Pepper. And even within, on Sunset, within the track on Sunset, his voice and then his kind of wistful, he's doing what we're all doing. He's done that wistful look back on his life, you know. That's in the 60s and it's different now. Everything's different now. And I watched the Long Hot Summers and I watched the uh, Miss Summer music. Incredible. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of joy now with the man that Paul's become, the music that he's making, and and now I can look back at his life and think, wow, what a legacy! That Number one albums in five different decades is just—it's yeah. astonishing. Probably, I'm the only person that remembers this, and I, and I bet Paul wouldn't even remember. I used to syndicate my pictures through London Features International, and I was the only photographer that had a deal. The guy who ran it was pretty right wing, and as much as he was a Thatcher fan, and I was, you know, couldn't be more opposite. But you know, we got along, and we had a professional relationship, and he was a friend, you know. We just, I tried to avoid talking politics to him because I'd want to punch him in the face if I, <laughs> I did. But he syndicated my pictures, but I had this deal with him that he wasn't allowed to sell my pictures in South Africa because this was during apartheid and Nelson Mandela was still in prison. And um, he was not allowed to sell my pictures to any of the murder papers, so The Sun, The News of the World. And I was the only photographer that had a deal like that. He didn't like to, you know, you were either with him and he syndicated your pictures or you weren't. But he let me do that because he knew it meant a lot to me. And this was around the time of, all the strife, you know, and the minor strikes or whopping the the news, newsprint, newspaper strikes. But um a friend of mine worked at Sunday Magazine, which was the News of the World magazine. She gave me this job going to uh, Rock Around the Dock in Liverpool. And the Damned, I think Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Run DMC and a bunch of other bands. So I went and I took pictures. And when Paul found out, he got really pissed off and didn't want to work with me anymore or well, that's that's the story that i got and i don't think i ever did see him again after that although i may have taken pictures i think clapham common was after that so and and i could be misremembering mis- but what struck me as ironic was that the feature in sunday magazine had a big interview from rock around the Dock with dc lee they were married at the time or a couple at the time so it never really made sense to me that he would have said that and not wanted to work with me when his wife or girlfriend or band member is like the featured artist. But the reason I wanted to mention it is when I look back, I think he was right. And I think I shouldn't have. I kind of rationalized it over the years in my head that it's not News of the World, it's Sunday Magazine, it's a separate magazine, and you know, my friend works there and she wanted to give me this job and I needed to work. And those are really the worst reasons. You know, when you self-justify something, and I've always prided myself on integrity and you know good on Paul if that is the case and if that's why I didn't work with him again then good on him because mm. I think maybe he saw something he was a bit sharper than, than I did and I've come to I've come to realise that over the years but having said all that I would love to to see him again and sit down and have a cup of tea and or a cappuccino and have a chat and um, catch up over the years
0: I mean that sounds heartbreaking in a way as well because you've obviously had a really close relationship and then suddenly kind of you know not really understanding what's happened and why and things like that yeah
1: yeah maybe we should have if things just pass you by, though. That's that's one thing I've learned this last year with the lockdown and going over the archive, and it, all my contemporaries are doing the same thing, you know. Like, I love that Virginia Turbot's digging up all these, like, anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism and picks and pictures of punks, and we're all going through our archive and our past, and we reflect on it. And then it's clear that Paul's doing that in his writing as well. Mm. And I hear from a lot of different directions that um, he's mellowed a lot over the years. I will say this, um, i I've, found this picture this color picture of of Paul and Dee that i took in high uh, park in that session and i think it's probably in the book as well i think it be been sold D. Hmm. but it's a really nice pic and i did a giveaway on my on my website of a print which incidentally the winner didn't claim and then the, and then I, I picked someone else and they didn't claim it and I, someone, didn't. <laughs> I entered i still have the print you did i did
0: yeah i entered that competition <laughs> i
1: should send you i should send you a print but, um, one, of the, one of the people who liked that picture when i put it on instagram was leah paul and d's daughter she's brilliant i, I listen to her stuff um, she's yeah. making an album and that first song I listened to of hers was absolutely gorgeous.
0: The single with Steve Craddock is, is beautiful, it's brilliant. Like the, the dub feel on that, I love It's
1: excellent. She liked the picture. So I, I messaged her and she actually messaged me back. And I said, um, well, I can send I, I'd like to send you one. So she said, Yeah, I'd love that. So she sent me her address and I sent her a picture. Of, um oh, cool. she lives out in West London. So I sent her the print. She said, I'll show it to my mum and dad. And I was like, ooh, I was all nervous. <laughs> and then like the next week she wrote back and she said, Mum and dad love the picture. So I feel like thanks to thanks to leah there's some kind of completion of that oh, i feel know. like that like like putting the last piece in a, in a big puzzle with 300 pieces or 500 pieces i felt a bit more peace after she said that oh yeah just about that on sunset it's such a reflective song but it's his voice. His voice does something to me on that song. I can't describe it. uh, Maybe I was a photographer, not a writer. It's a really long, I like the long version of it as well. And then there's the remix, right? With the, um, with the, with the the strings and everything. I I feel like that's like an elegy, like a, a, like a summation of his career, like looking back over, you know, and I think there's a metaphors of of LA and, and the palm trees and everything, but I feel like what he's really saying is, you know, just I'm a lot older now and, you know, being wistful and reflective and, and, but then also he's happy and, you know, in a good place. Yeah.
0: Cause it was, I think it was written on a trip to LA, like you say, to see his son, his eldest son, like walking down, I think it's Sunset Strip, isn't it? In LA? And yeah. reminiscing about the fact that, you know, the jam had played there and how different it was and how much it had changed. So there's definitely been a mo- much more kind of looking back as much as looking forward in the music recently, you feel. So that's entertainment on the sunset. I'm going to let you have, I'll, I'll let you have those two as you've been so kind. Um, Final question. Um, obviously this podcast is all about managing to secure that conversation with Paul and have that interview at the end of the podcast series as well. Is there one question that you think I should ask?
1: I, I know that his Red Wedge experience maybe wasn't that great in terms of he, he he didn't like getting railroaded. He didn't like the any kind of groupthink or or the organized part of it, the Labour Party, or the idea that we were supporting the Labour Party. And I kind of felt the same way because I've never um joined a political party. I've always had my my views. I don't know. I, I remember when he, when he said he supported Thatcher when he was with The, with the Jam, and I'm almost 100% sure that, he was, that it was just cool, Young, Paul winding people up because he knew it would get a rise out of people, and, and it did. And I feel like he's been very consistent uh, uh, since that. Maybe, maybe just did he feel that he was being subversive? I, I don't think I'm imputing that to him. I mean, with the, with the Star Council, because you know I said the other day that they're just such a subversive band with the pop the pop and the and the really sharp, hard-hitting lyrics. But you know, was that was that deliberate, or, or was it just looking back? It just it just happened that way. Because like Billy would be, you know, there's power in a union. There's power in a factory, power in the van, power in the, land, power in the, power power in the so, hands of the union. Billy's like, and, and Paul's like, money go round, watch your money go around, wrapped it your money go. Around? <laughs> it's just like. He's grooving. Billy's Billy's like hitting. And and if Billy was a boxer, he'd be like, bam, bam, bam. And, and Paul would be like, stick a yeah. move, stick a move, yeah. stick a move. Yeah. Yeah. But he'd still knock you out, you know.
0: <laughs> That's a very good analogy. I love it. <laughs> hey, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. I've, I've enjoyed every second of this. I really do appreciate
1: it. Thanks, mate. That was, that was really fun for me as well. And love to everyone. Love to, love to all, all those guys, all the Steves, the many, many Steves, um, and DC Lee, who I, was, you know, I always adored, always have a really big soft spot for her. Rush, Rush, you never never really gets a mention. Um Rush right. Winter, who played with the Star Council, she's on the Red Wedge Tour. Helen Turner was on that tour, Billy Chapman, and Steve Sidelnik, Steve White. They were all a joy. They they really were all a joy to to see and um Hang out with, and um, it's a big, big happy part of my life. So thanks. My
0: right, thanks once again to Steve. What an amazing journey. And don't forget, you can check out the show notes if you want to find out more with links to his website and a brand new book of Weller photos called Modfather that's available now. Next up, singer-songwriter Jeff Slate, internationally recognized recording artist and music journalist, and one of my favourite episodes yet. Jeff is a massive Paul Weller fan from the Jam, the Star Council, and solo. He's interviewed the man on many many occasions and has what has to be the world's greatest bootleg collection don't forget to share this episode on social media leave a review wherever you get your podcasts it really does help us to find new listeners to the show you can get in touch on twitter at weller fan Pod, or you can find us on instagram and facebook it's paul weller fan podcast i'll see you next time